Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Science of Sport podcast. I am Ross Tucker and this is an interview with Dr. Emma Hilton, who is a developmental biologist in Manchester and who many of you may know as one of the more outspoken and eloquent and perhaps most importantly, scientifically accurate voices in this ongoing transgender issue in sport. It's an interview that I did with Dr. Hilton live on Twitter Spaces, which is a new platform that effectively allows one to broadcast what's a radio interview live on Twitter, and then anyone can listen to it. And we did that on Thursday, the 25th of November. Many of you tuned in and listened to all or part of it. Thank you for that. It was our first rodeo, first attempt, and I think it lends itself quite well to covering newsworthy stories that have a sports science angle, so it's certainly something I will look to do more of in the future. In this particular one, as I mentioned, we tackle the transgender controversy. Um, Emma brings to it new perspectives as a developmental biologist. She's covered so many of the things that have happened in the last few years, and you'll hear her speak on a range of topics going from politics through philosophy all the way to, of course, the science and the biology of why this is an issue. I was reflecting a little bit on the interview, and it's a subject that, if I'm honest, I wish would move aside. It's become fatiguing and exasperating, but it's it's so important, and so that's why it's worth persisting with. But certainly it's become so ideological, politicized, polarized, combustible, that it's become increasingly difficult to speak science into it without repeating oneself because the same fallacies, the same unscientific argument, the same, in some instances, bad faith arguments are being made all the time. And that's a lot of what Emma and I discuss. So you may feel that you've heard it before. I mean, we've covered this fairly extensively on the podcast, including in our most recent episode. But we do cover some new things today, and so I hope you will find value in that and at least it will give you an introduction, if you haven't had that already, to Dr. Emma Hilton. Uh, one small thing, because it was recorded on Twitter Spaces, some of the sound is not as good as you may be accustomed to. It is a bonus episode, so I hope that you will forgive that, as it was recorded on our phones. But there you go. Other than that, I think the content is excellent. Emma is highly worth listening to and following. And so please do enjoy this interview with Dr. Emma Hilton. Hello? Yes, Emma, that's it. We're up. We're up and running. <laughs> Hello. Sorry, I could hear you. but I, And I thought my mic was on, but Twitter was telling me in my settings that it couldn't access my microphone, but we're sorted now. Okay, so for the sake of, for the sake of my own learning, it was a setting on your end and I wasn't being a, a tech Luddite on mine, was I? That's exactly right. I've never had to use Twitter with my microphone before, so... <laughs> There are many ways in which this is a first rodeo for both of us. Yes. So, so we, have, we have a lot of people in the room. Thank you for your patience. We're running a little bit late on this conversation. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get straight into it. I'm really excited 
to speak to Dr. Emma Hilton today. It's a conversation, I'd say, many years in the making. Uh, if you've dialed into this, it's because you already know who she is. So I probably needn't um, necessarily do a long introduction. If you don't know who Emma is, because you're listening to this maybe on the podcast later on, she goes by at Pond of Beatles on Twitter and has been one of the most outspokenly eloquent voices in the ongoing transgender athletes in sport debate. And the purpose of our discussion today is to try and explore some of the concepts that have raised their heads again in the last week or two with the, the IOC's announcement. We have covered this, Emma and I, together for at least the last two or three years, and you've all read what she has to say, but I was really excited to have her speak and to maybe introduce her to you in a way that Twitter doesn't always convey. So thank you very much for your time, Emma. Oh, no, you're absolutely welcome. <laughs> um, I also, I also want to like, try and explore some things that maybe Emma doesn't tweet about and, and try and give you some insight. So right, let, me, let me begin by asking you this. I remember about a year ago, as one does on this topic, you, you were having a discussion with someone who took offense to something you tweeted and dismissed you saying that they weren't going to listen to someone who studies Beatles for a living. Because, <laughs> they, because they obviously misread your, your handle, Fond of Beatles. Now, there's a story to why you're called Fond of Beatles. By way of introducing your credentials, tell us that story. So, Fond of Beatles is um, a partial quote from an evolutionary biologist called um, J.B.S. Haldane. And... Uh, it's the full quote is that if essentially if God existed in in terms of what we see around us in in the world that he must be awfully fond of beetles because there are so many beetles in the world um so so it was kind of a, a hat tip to my uh previous internet incarnation which <laughs> was spending a lot of time arguing against creationism and, you know, that the evolution was a kind of real biological phenomenon and, you know, that creationism was kind of a, an ideology that didn't stand up to the science. And so you can kind of see where I'm going with this because now I find myself, you know, engaged in debates again where we're, we're looking at a clash between what I think is real science versus what people want to believe is true. Yeah, exactly. So that, I remember that person basically dismissed you not knowing that, that story. And you've preempted my next question, which is, if you weren't tweeting about this, what would you be discussing instead? And, and you've said that. Um, you've also teed up that you're, you're qualified as a developmental biologist. Um, I tried to call you earlier today and you said you needed 10 minutes because presumably <laughs> you, were, you were buried in the laboratory doing some research that... Um, We'll see the light of day in a journal. Maybe just tell us a little bit about what it is you do in your in your day job when you're not refuting the fallacies about Michael Fox's <laughs> answer. Um, so, in my, so yes, I'm a developmental biologist. I spend a lot of time looking at how um, you know embryos grow, how they make bits of their body, um, and one of the things I I've been working on recently, well, for the last few years actually, is looking at how. Um, muscles and nerves particularly kind of skeletal muscles they're the muscles you know throughout your body that make your limbs move that make your body move and um, looking at how the nerve links up with the muscle how it creates a functional kind of junction so that you know you get a nerve signal that says 
this muscle needs to move and then the muscle responds. So I've been looking at how that grows in a, a developing embryo. And, and in the meantime, you've become a very accomplished sports scientist. Um, yes, it's been a, a baptism of fire. It kind of came about really, well, a, a little while ago, someone said to me, you're a developmental biologist. Please don't think you don't have some insight into, you know, this sports thing. We're all told we're scientists. You're told to be creative. You're told to come at things from a different angle. And, and I really hadn't kind of trusted my insight or, or my perspective until then. And I'm really grateful to that person who said, don't think that, you know, you can't explain this to people, that you can't understand this in a way that maybe people haven't thought about before. Mm. So, so the, the next question is, I can phrase it in two ways, emphasizing different parts of it. The first is, why, why are you discussing this issue? And perhaps some listeners will think that's obvious. But the other thing I'm curious about is, why are you discussing this issue? What, what, wh why? Because so many people are clearly, even looking at the numbers of people who've joined this call, and when, when there's discussion around this, it's, it obviously touches so many people's lives. Why did you take up the mantle to talk so um, passionately about this? Well, I've been engaged in, um, you know, sport throughout my life. So it's something that I would say for me is a particular interest. You know, generally, I, I spend a lot of time playing sport. I spend a lot of time watching sport. And it, and I, I'm also a feminist. <laughs> and so caring about women's sport and, and, you know, access, opportunity, that kind of thing. And so wh when it became apparent to me that there was, I, I don't want to use the word threat in a kind of um, a particularly hyperbolic way, but when it became clear that something was going on in women's sport that with my scientific hat on didn't seem, intuitively didn't seem very fair, and, and by that, I mean the inclusion of transgender women in female sports. I kind of thought, hang on, I've got, you know, I, not I tick a lot of boxes here, but, you know, this is a scientific discipline. I care a lot about women's sport. And I've got kind of some tools here to really start digging into this. And, yeah, so that, that, that makes sense. And it's, it's become something that I think has grown for you, right? Because you've now begun a group that argues even beyond sport, which is something, I'll be honest, I, I haven't entered territories outside of my own sporting domain, but you, you seem to have done that. Yes, yeah, so I'm, um, so you're talking about Sex Matters? Yes. Yeah, so I'm a director of a group called Sex Matters, and we, we formed as a group of, um, we're not just women, it's women, men, um, and we're, we're essentially a policy group in the UK. What we try and do is look at domains within society where sex, that is your biology, your develop, you know, your development, your kind of reproductive anatomy and your reproductive physiology. We're trying to look at domains where that matters as a, a kind of, you know, more, where it's more important than something like gender identity. So, you know, does sex matter when you're employing someone? Well, we all agree, no, it shouldn't. You know, it would be sexist to say that sex matters. Um, but does sex matter, for example, in sport? 
does it matter when women are seeking kind of refuge from male violence? Well, then our argument is that there are, you know, there, there are these domains where really sex is, is a, a, you know, of key importance. Does it, um, th- does it fatigue you and exasperate you and frustrate you to be in this discussion, specifically to sport now? In what way do you mean exasperate? Well, if I think back, I mean, I, I don't even remember when I first made contact with you, but so much has happened, some of it good. If I think of some of the policies like the Sports UK, the UK Council one that came out, um, I think there's certainly more conversation about this than ever before. So I would imagine you look at it and you say there's been progress. But then last week, I think, and we'll get on to this, I think that mm. we had the opposite of progress. We, we, went, we regressed in sports. And I just wonder what it's like for you as someone who's involved, clearly passionate about it, and is fighting this <laughs> this battle, not to use hyperbole <laughs> myself this time, and and it just it, I don't know. Do you ever do you ever feel this is futile and frustrating, and you get fed up with this? I mean, I have to say, this week has been pretty, you know, head in hands. What 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 do we do here? How how do we? You know, I'm taking a position that I think is scientifically sound. And it's very frustrating to come up against uh, uh, people who are working from what I think is a a non-scientific or sometimes deliberately unscientific point of view, trying to understand that they think that approach is the right one, trying to understand, you know, feeling that I feel mine is the right one. And so, yes, it's frustrating. And yes, you just think, do I have the mental energy to carry on mm. with this? How do we, how do we, how do we move forward when you you feel like you're stepping backwards sometimes? Yeah, I, I can relate. I, so, I mean, ten, five, ten years ago, before this was the big issue, I felt the same way about doping because, as a sports scientist, the only way people ever wanted an opinion was when there was a doping scandal. And it feels like that's now been displaced by this. And I reckon there's not a day goes by that I don't wish this wasn't the story. It's because there are so many other things I would love to talk about and actually start celebrating positive things instead of pushing back against this thing that seems like it's got a lot of inertia and trying to figure out how best to target your direction of, of resistance, if, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, it's... Um... I mean, I, I have the refuge in the fact that I'm not a sports scientist and I don't make my living from this, but I can appreciate for you with a lot, you know, a kind of much broader range of interest in, so I read, you know, running shoes and that kind of thing. It's, um, it's, it, it must feel frustrating to you to have a lot of your time taken up by a single issue that I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume you feel the same about kind of the science versus non-science kind of approaches and yeah very much and we'll get we'll get onto those in a moment for listeners who've tuned in specifically for that i will say that you are a better sports scientist than most sports scientists i know (laughs) based on some of the based on some of the stuff that's coming out of like i know there's a conference at the moment an ioc medical conference and i've heard some things there and some of the papers on this topic i'm just aghast at how how scientists can think the way they do on this subject. I actually, I almost, I almost want to disown my own field sometimes. It's that frustrating. Well, I think it's, I think that's where being a developmental biologist has, has worked for me because I already had a, a good background in, you know, how, how bodies develop 
under hormonal control and you know the the kind of minutiae of reproductive anatomy is something that I've learned a lot about over the last years but but it wasn't particularly difficult to support knowledge that I already had you know what testosterone does at puberty and that kind of thing so Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think, in fact, uh, your explanations of DSDs was probably the first time you crossed my um, Twitter desktop or app or whatever you call this thing. Was, and I'm I sure remember, get, yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure we'll get into, I'm sure we'll get into some of those. You certainly informed me about more than I informed myself. Um, one, one last thing before we get onto the science. Have you ever, have you ever been threatened or... or um, because I mean, I, I followed, for instance, Kathleen Stock, and I've seen what's happened to J.K. Rowling, and I know that it's difficult for you to speak out about these things professionally. Have you have you encountered that? So I have, obviously, on social media. I try not to. I mean, I'm pretty robust at taking name calling and stuff. I can, you know, ignore it and just try and try and find out if there's a, a way for any dialogue going forward. Um, so obviously, name calling and various kind of private messages calling me names um my institute has had complaints about me um attacking my position but also you know trying to tear me down just generally as a scientist and why are they employing me and that kind of thing my institute have been very supportive and i'm really grateful to them for that and I think that's in part because I, I do try and be quite scientific about how I talk and, you know, polite. And I think this is something that scientists are used to anyway when they're, they're mm. talking about, about work. Um, it, it, I think there's an escalation that comes with, if I can be so bold, a slightly, you know, an increasing kind of profile here. Um, so I have been, I've been reported for a hate crime incident to the UK police. This is... It was completely kind of bonkers to me that I can feel like I'm talking about science and someone else would mm. think that that's a hate crime. Um, and also, you know, I'm basically the world's kind of, uh, you know, goody two-shoes. So the idea of having a police record <laughs> is um, just completely anathema to me. Um, so, but, I mean, nothing came of that. I assume there wasn't any particular... Um, charge to answer if you like but mm. but it is it is kind of increasing and like you say we've seen with uh, Kathleen Stock where this can end up yeah yeah exactly I, it's interesting because I I've certainly been attacked on social media myself but I've, unless I'm blissfully unaware of what's happening and, and other people have shielded me from it I've never I've, I've been fortunate never to have it go to my employers I would imagine that that's quite a terrifying prospect and one of the most startling things that has come out recently was in the UK Sports Council document where they reported how many people had been threatened with with things like dismissal or sanction or disciplinary action as a consequence of pushing against the grain and like you it's uh, it's remarkable to me that a scientific opinion is sufficient to actually discipline and and in the, in your case have a criminal record it's it's an, we're in a, an astonishing place I, amazing well i think i would you know slightly note the fact that we are um different sexes and that women tend to get generally across mm. lots of different um domains generally attacked a bit more when they 
um, speak out. Indeed, I'm, gl- I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. I was I was angling towards it, but I think it was better coming from you. Um, so, so, so part of part of that actually is um, the reason we're having this conversation now is because at the weekend there was a discussion. I guess I mean I wasn't in the UK. Is it a radio or television show that GB News feed? It's a TV show. And there was criticism on social media about the fact that the the host had invited people to discuss this issue, and none of those people were female. And that's part of the reason I wanted to get your voice out on this issue now. Um, not that you, not that you need help based on your, your <laughs> um, accomplishments, but but I wanted to explore in in that discussion a few things were raised, and that was kind of the trigger for this. So the first of those is this issue of fairness in sport, and this is where we now get onto some of the the biological concepts that I think most of you may be interested in. Less politics, more biology. What is what does fairness in sport even mean when the whole point of sports is to find people who have advantages? Yeah, and I think um, it's a really interesting question. I think probably not a biology question in its foundation, but more a kind of philosophy question. Mm. But, I mean, when we think about fairness, it's like equality, isn't it? Um, but I don't think we mean that in sport, because like you just said, the point of like a sporting competition is to find you know, the, the victor from a, a pool of people with unequal sets of talents. And so, so I think fairness in sport is more about equality of opportunity, which is the chance to win, you know. Yes. Yeah. And, and recognising that sport itself is a measure of talent rather than a measure of output, if you like. And so we want, we want sports fairness to recognize talent and uh, you know from that you you get on to how do you ensure that equally talented people have equal opportunities to win so let's take the let's take an obvious example and 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 we'll we'll circle this back towards biological sex weight categories in boxing ensure Mm -hmm. and, and feel free to add but weight categories in boxing ensure that when the outcome of a fight is decided it's decided by factors other than stature uh, bulk power and strength yes and similarly in the paralympics um the categories ensure that the, the degree to which you are affected by say cerebral palsy or uh, an amputation is not the, the confounding factor that is so large that it overwhelms the result so what do you then make when people say but 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 michael phelps has long arms i <laughs> well i think that Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps's arms are not that extraordinarily long for a swimmer. So, you know, (laughs) you know, so people talk about, and it's very easy for the general population to look at someone like Michael Phelps and say, well, look at him. He, I mean, he's really tall and he has got long arms, but, but we're not talking about a pool of the general population, no pun intended, but talking about a pool of swimmers. So we've already selected for some, you know, physical, characteristics that are going to be advantageous in swimming but really when we think about what what really gets me I did you know Michael Phelps's arms are an advantage when he's swimming but the, the question is is that an unfair advantage or is that the type of advantage that we accept as part of sport or indeed that we seek as part of sport mm. and I think it's the 
the, the final thing. I think when we look at a swimming competition, for example, we're looking to find a person who has some kind of unique package of advantages that, that come together in what we might call talent. Um, and, and we're looking to see uh, over a, a range of swimmers who has, who has long arms, who has a brilliant start, who has a really good stroke rhythm. And, and not one of those things is overwhelmingly going to ensure that someone wins. And in fact, Michael Phelps is, you know, this kind of perfect physique for swimming, but actually his records are, are going. And they're going, you know, they're being taken by swimmers who aren't as physically perfect as Michael Phelps is. And so, so it, it, how, I always come back to this question, how can Michael Phelps's arms be unfair when the person who's beaten his world record doesn't have Michael Phelps's arms? In, indeed. And I mean, I don't know if I'll ever have the pleasure of meeting Mr. Phelps, but I'm going to ask him if he knows that his arms have been used <laughs> in this debate. I, I don't know why Phelps's arms. I mean, I can think of many others. People used to say Usain Bolt has fast twitch muscle fibers. Yes, like all the other athletes at the Olympics. Mm. Uh, you can make the argument for height in the NBA, I suppose. And I guess to some extent, I don't know where you stand on this, is you, you could argue that there should be a category to protect short people in basketball, volleyball, netball, right? I mean, I do think there is a logical argument. And I mean, you know, technically a logical argument for height categories. Um, and, I, you know, I think that that would create a, you know, another kind of playing field for shorter people. So, so I think that argument is coherent. Yes. And in fact, I've heard it said by a few people that, and, and maybe we'll get onto this now, if, if, if this issue of sex categories was to fail as a consequence of the pressure to recognize gender, not sex, that height would be a good substitute for sex. Now, of course, that's, that's not true. There's considerably more overlap with respect to height than there is the, the things mm. that are affected by biological sex. But do you ever see a compromise that could achieve it if you were to combine a few things? Because that's the other argument that I have heard. Is There's a paper brought out by someone based out of New Zealand in which they reckon that you could measure a handful of metrics, attributes, and categorize that way instead of sex. So I think, again, I will say that I think that's a coherent argument. I think it is so entirely impractical that we, we can't realistically think about how it would work. I think you could take a broad brush and say, let's take, you know, height, weight, muscle mass, something like that. The difference between the sexes are way more numerous than than something that people can you know count on their hands and you're down to tiny tiny differences things that as a percentage you know of a, a winning margin wouldn't seem to be well you know you could say that they're negligible but when mm. you've got thousands of these small differences things that maybe you can't test for things that we don't necessarily even know about it becomes difficult to to think how do you, you you just have a category for every single person because every single person is unique yeah and and in fact when we um when we put together the world rugby transgender guidelines that was something we knew would be 
put forward by those in opposition who disagreed with it, the idea that you can evaluate on a case-by-case basis. And I, I, I don't think, I hope you won't mind me saying this, but on this call in this space is John Pike, who is a philosopher. You mentioned philosophy earlier. And mm. he was actually really important in that discussion. He, he, he gave a number of uh, very rational, calmly stated, and essentially correct reasons why case-by-case doesn't work. And those listening, you can find John. He's at runthinkright on Twitter. So if you are interested in the philosophy side, give him a listen. I hope that's okay. I just said that, John. I know you've tweeted it, so I'm, I'm going to go with it. Um, <laughs> do, do you think, just coming back to that, and I'm playing devil's advocate to some extent here, what is the best argument for inclusion, in your opinion? In terms of trans women in female sports? Right. So obviously, and, and, and I mean, again, everyone listening to this knows that you and I are of the same mind in terms of what should happen. Um, but if I was to ask you to play the other side and explain what you would argue in terms of, in terms of being for inclusion, what, what would that be? I, I think I would do what, what, and we'll come on to what the IOC have, have done shortly, but I think I would take the IOC route which is to plough through on a, a human rights kind of angle. Mm. And that, um, you know, they, they claim I don't agree that sport is a human right. Um, they, if, if one is even to think that sport is a human right, I don't think that would apply to how you're categorised in sport. I can understand that you might argue access to sport, should you wish to have it, is, is some kind of right. Um, and, and so I think I would plough through, not from a scientific point of view, I, and, because I don't think there is a scientific rationale. Mm. I think I would go through on an ethics and human rights angle. And you, you could take the view, the IOC haven't been, I think, as honest to say it, but maybe they're thinking, look, we know it's, you know, these rules are going to harm some female athletes. Maybe they have an idea of numbers but but to then say but we think the benefit to the trans community we think the benefit to society we think the benefits in terms of inclusion outweigh the harm that we know will happen so so you could try and make some kind of you know argument about relative harms yeah and at least that would be an honest argument at least that would be honest yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I said also I would strongly disagree with it um, because why should why should only one group's rights matter? I believe there is a group of people who have a right to fair and safe sporting spaces. But at least if someone said that, you could you could have a discussion with them where you look them in the eye and you say, at least I know where you stand and it's accurate. The, the, the problem from my perception is that people are being deceptive. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. And this, this, this circles us a little bit back towards developmental biology. Maybe... Maybe developmental biology 101 is what, what's the basis for the male advantage in sport? I know this is basic for most people listening to this, but perhaps for some it's not. So maybe you can, you, you actually posted a couple of tweets the other day that I thought were very simple and elegant and, and explained it beautifully. So just to repeat to those. So I, you mean like, why, why, why do men run faster? <laughs> and everything faster and further and stronger yeah. and more powerfully and higher and so on. And, and I guess the fundamental point I want to get to is why can't we undo it? Yeah, so, so you know, there are, there are two sexes and 
males and females because we we do different things as we reproduce and you know propagate our species and so that's the kind that you know there are anatomical uh, uh, adaptations for that role and but what we also have not just you know how do you reproduce how do you you know attract someone to reproduce with and those kinds of evolutionary or those evolved characteristics are what we think of as secondary sex characteristics. They happen at puberty. Mm. So, you know, men get taller, their shoulders get broader. Women uh, don't grow quite as, quite as tall. They grow breasts, their hips widen because they're, you know, going to give birth probably at some point. And, and so you have these secondary sex characteristics. They happen at puberty and they're about what we would call reproductive fitness, about, you know, how attractive are you to someone else? And, and in terms of males, how good are you at fighting off other males? And right, so you... and those are the characteristics. Sorry to interrupt you, just because, no. but I do want to bring to this because I think it's important. Those are the characteristics that confuse people, either willfully or not, when they start talking about overlap between the sexes and therefore they reject the sex binary. So maybe, maybe we can just explore that and be very clear about the difference between those secondary sex characteristics and sex. Yes. So sex would describe your reproductive anatomy. You know, are you, are you going to provide an egg or are you going to provide a sperm? And the, you know, the biological equipment you have to do those two roles, to have one of those two roles. When, when we think about secondary characteristics, they are softer. They are, they are not as clear markers of sex as, say, something like, in males having a penis or in, you know, females having a, a vulva. So, so they're, they're softer markers, and that means there's overlap. Humans actually aren't that different to each other. The two sexes, when you look at some of the animal kingdom, there are huge differences between males and females. Humans are actually really quite similar. Um, that doesn't mean they're, they're the same. <laughs> um, mm. But, but they're really quite similar. So, so we do have a lot of overlap in terms of height, um, in terms of, uh, you know, maybe some muscle mass and that kind of thing. Right. And, and so what do we make of overlap? Because, in fact, overlap is a, is a foundational requirement of buying into the IOC's document. Because the whole premise in that document really boils down to no presumption of advantage, and you have to assess every athlete individually, which, which can only be argued if you start from a position where there's overlap and thus some biological males are shorter, smaller, slower, weaker, less powerful than biological uh, females, right? Yes. So why don't we care about that overlap in those characteristics? Sorry, what do you mean by why don't we, why don't we care? Well, for, for the purposes of sport, like why don't we factor that in and say, all right, well, there's overlap, so therefore why can't we let some biological males into women's sport? Well, I think if you follow it to its log logical progression, if you are looking at overlapping characteristics, and this would, going back to what we talked about earlier, this would be going back to making some measurements about height, weight, muscle mass, mm. that kind of thing, and saying... You know, this male overlaps with this female. They can compete against each other on a rugby pitch, say. Mm. Then, then what you're... What, to try and make that a special rule that only applies to people with a particular gender identity, I think is mm -hmm. problematic. Yeah. 
if if you are a male who is not trans who might feel that you can comfortably play with females and not pose a risk and not you know be particularly kind of strong then why why would you then be excluded from from those sports and what what you have to do to match such a male and such a female is take a male who you know within the male pool is relatively weaker than that female is so yeah. you're mis you're mismatching on percentiles you're going to have to take a male who is relatively weak for males in order to find a match with a female who is relatively strong for females and when we think about sport and what we want to reward and what constitutes talent and aptitude we want to look at how to reward the strongest the fastest you know the people that are better mm. Right, so, so to explore that further, because I think it's quite important, it came up at the weekend again, and there's a nuance to that. If we say a really simple event like the 100 meters, the, the only way you match male and female at, is to take two athletes from different levels, you, you call the percentiles, within those two cohorts or populations, right? Yes. And the, in, in the end result would be that you'd be inviting relatively mediocre males to be at the same performance level as exceptional females. Yep. And if we come back again to the fairness argument, that seems to undermine fairness because you're effectively giving someone a head start in order to mm. make them equal. That's the problem. Now, I want yes, to and we, we want that female to be, we want that female 100-meter runner who is exceptional to be rewarded for being exceptional. Right. That's, you know, that's part of fairness in sport, that we're rewarding exceptional talent. Well, it's the whole purpose of sport, mm. I would suggest, right? I mean, and that's the great irony is that the, the defense of categories actually enables equal reward. It's not unequal to, de to, to defend the category. Um, but, but when we talk about relatively mediocre, and there was a discussion on Twitter at the weekend, I think it was Anthony Ward who, who brought this up, and he was, he was sort of objecting to the word mediocre males because – a male who can run a 10.8100 is still an exceptional athlete, even within men. Um, I suspect it gets, because the differences are larger for things like weightlifting, you get even more mediocre males. But do, do you, when people talk about opening of the floodgates and women's sport will be dominated by, by men, I guess the question I'm asking is whether, whether there are enough males who are fast enough to dominate women's sport that we'll see that. And I guess then also, does it matter? So I think when we talk about mediocre males, and I don't tend to use the phrase, but uh, people do. But when we talk about mediocre males, I don't think we mean, you know, the fella next door to me in the office. What we mean is within some kind of athletic pool, whether that's within an elite mm. competition, whether that's at your running club, whether that's in your, you know, university team or whatever. So, so there, in my head, there's always been some boundary that when I say, if I, you know, if I say mediocre male, what I mean is a mediocre, you know, mid-pack Olympic athlete. I don't mean some, you know, the guy next door to me. Um, so I think that's probably been misunderstood. There's probably a little bit of a language, you know, some assumptions and that kind of thing here. Mm. The, the, the number of males who can beat females, let's take the 100 metres, um, will number in the thousands. 
Um, and if we take a background, you know, population number of those males who we might predict are trans and who might then wish to compete as females, you start to see, a, you know, a, a chunk of them. Mm. I'm not I'm not suggesting that's necessarily what would happen, but. Right. And, and it'll be interesting to see where the next decade leads in terms of numbers, because I think the, the prevalence on the one side is going up. Yes. And the access to sport has been changed as a consequence of last week's IOC decision. So mm. theoretically, you would now anticipate, if there is that advantage, that, that the numbers would, would rise. Circling back to your earlier um, answer around um, fairness and, and the, 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 the volume, I guess, is where I'm going with this, is I know of at least one, one rugby union that said that they know what the right thing to do is, but the, the negative fallout is large enough that they're willing to take the risk that the numbers will be so low that it'll never happen. That argument makes sense? Yes, it does. And the IOC, when they, when they made their decisions um, in 2015, pretty much said that. They, don't, they really don't think numerically there's mm. going to be a problem. And they had envisaged that, you know, maybe, I guess, with someone like Rene Richards in mind, that there may be a couple of Masters athletes, um, you know, they, they were very much focused on kind of low, low level sports. Right. Um, and, and so I think th the premise was there's not going to be many. Let's let's really just assess each case. And that's not a case by case assessment of performance. But let's just manage a case once every two years or whatever they were imagining, you know, the frequency was going to be. Let's just mm. see how it is. Let's let's wing it. And that wasn't unreasonable at the time when they were predicting numbers. But as you said, the way trans is defined now, the, the re relaxation of rules about who can qualify, who becomes eligible for the female category, has changed. And society has changed. More and more people are identifying as trans. More and more people are playing with their gender identity. They're exploring, you know, these kinds of, these kinds of um, parts of themselves. And so, so numerically, the IOC's original prediction, which may have been once every two years, we're, we're going to have a case and have to deal with it. I just think we're at the cusp of something that is going to grow to be much, uh, you know, a much larger problem in the next 10 years. Mm, I mean, as I say, when, when, the, when the World Rugby Policy was released, there were unions who pretty much, and, and what it basically boils down to is we recognize your position, we, we probably agree with it, but it's not worth the hassle to us because the, the negative blowback will be greater than the risk of there actually being an athlete we have to deal with. That was their position. Mm -hmm. um, and they're playing a volume game and, and they're saying it only affects so few people, which again, because it's a colliding rights issue, that's one perspective. But if you put yourself on the other side, it affects everyone else too. And it surprises me that people haven't recognized that. They don't seem to have the ability to, to move around the debate and look at it from the other perspective. Does that surprise you or is that something that, that I'm naive about? Um, I think it's interesting if you take, let's say, a, a governing body who say, look, we haven't got any athletes who we think we're going to have to regulate in this way. So we're going to, you know, follow a, an inclusion policy. Because the, the, does the opposite apply? I've, it's just occurred to me, I haven't really thought it through. But 
the opposite could apply. They could say, well, we're going to exclude and know, equally know that that's not going to harm anyone either. <laughs> so so there was still a, there's still a shift, isn't there? There's still a kind of policy mm. to, to be pro-inclusion, I guess, because like you say, politically, that does sound much more kind of palatable. Mm. And societally, I suppose. And I think it's fair mm. to say that in society, and you said this at the outset, there are many spaces where gender identity is absolutely irrelevant and should be welcomed irrespective of what it is. But sport may not necessarily be one of those. So, so if I can use that to circle you back, because I did interrupt your, your biology lesson. Having, having created all these differences between male and female, why can't they be reversed? So, yeah, so these differences happen at puberty, they happen, I think, the consensus among the scientific community that apparently not Richard Budget from the IOC. Um, the consensus is that testosterone, this is a hormone, surges in males and you have this kind of uh, very consistent pattern of physical changes, height, shoulders, muscle mass, that kind of thing. And, and you know, these are things that are favourable in sports. Those changes are almost definitionally irreversible. Once you've made a bone get long, short of a, you know, a disease or injury process, you're not going to decrease its length. So, so I think when we were thinking about trans women and what changes, you know, when they suppress testosterone in adulthood, so they've gone through puberty, all these changes have happened to their body. Very typical male changes. When, when those have happened, what happens when later on they suppress testosterone? And it was a no-brainer thinking, well, you know, trans women aren't going to get shorter and they don't get shorter. Their hands don't shrink, their feet don't shrink. There were probably some things that you thought or that you might have predicted were going to be very sensitive to changes in testosterone. And that's borne out in things like hemoglobin data. Mm. So hemoglobin, for those listening, is the molecule that carries oxygen in your blood. We've known for some time that that's very sensitive to testosterone levels. So, so it was kind of, okay, so when we suppress, you know, when these males suppress testosterone in adulthood, their hemoglobin's probably going to drop. Mm. Um, and, and there was data on that, and we, we knew that that would happen. Um, what, what we didn't really know, I guess, and what, what I and um, Dr. Tommy Lumberg at the Karolinska sat down and did was collected studies on muscle mass without really knowing how sensitive muscle mass would be to testosterone changes in adulthood outside of the you know doping or um you know periods of low testosterone that males sometimes go through and what we found actually that muscle mass was surprisingly resistant to loss of testosterone in adulthood Yes, and, that, and for those listening, there's a review that was published by MN and Dr. Tommy Lindbergh that you can find. That, that review then was, in effect, repeated, although with a different method, by Joanna Harper. Mm. And the conclusion of that, I mean, it's your, it's your paper, so in your words, the, the ultimate conclusion is? Um, that, that, you know, male advantage acquired at puberty in terms of uh, skeletal proportions, in terms of muscle mass and strength, is only minimally reduced by testosterone suppression in adulthood, and that has implications for sports 
particularly when we think about inclusion of trans women in female categories. Mm. Given that the given that the policy at the time was uh, that you can create fairness and inclusion at the same time by simply lowering testosterone, that at the time that that was done, it, it was a research study by Joanna Harper, and it must have seemed like, um, yeah, I mean, it must it must have seemed like a life jacket to a drowning man when the IOC heard this prospect of doing both together, right? For sure, because they, you know, it's it's a tricky decision to make, and uh, no, you know, like you've you've alluded to the politics surrounding it, and and how people in the wider society accept kind of something that might look exclusionary. I think everyone's natural instinct instinct is to reject exclusion, mm. um, and and so yes, Joanna Harper's study in was kind of key for the 2015 decision for the IOC, which, as you say, basically said, if you lower testosterone for 12 months, then um, we, you know, we think that this delivers fairness for trans women in the female category. They never really explained what they meant by fairness. Uh, but the, the inference is that, you know, this period of testosterone suppression would reduce or, you know, would remove the sporting advantage that males have over females. Yes. And, and Harper's study appeared to support that. So Joanna Harper, she collected data from club, club to kind of sub-elite runners who had transitioned. So she had some before, you know, running times over various distances before, running times over various distances after transition, and and basically said that if you look at these these trans women's positions within the field, they haven't they haven't moved through the field. They haven't become better within the female field than they were within the male field. So they've kind of stayed the same in reference to um, birth sex and then their kind of uh, mm. acquired sports sex, if you like. Yeah, and your your objections to that, I mean, I know that there are numerous, but if you could, if you could sum them up, what are some of the issues there? Well, the issues are <laughs> that <laughs> there were a very small number of runners. Harper was one of them. That the times, I think she could only verify about half of the times. The rest of them were self-reported. And I don't remember how popular like Strava was back in 2015, but we're literally talking about people people's own personal records of the times mm. in a particular race um, and people saying I ran 5k here and then I ran 5k there these are different courses they're at different stages they're at different ages they've trained differently they've been a bit ill they've had an injury that kind of thing there was no control for kind of the normal changes that an athlete experiences through I mean some of some of the runners had transitioned for a year. Some had transitioned 30 years previously. And so yeah, you've got so fact, confounding yeah. factors like age and, mm. and those kinds of things, which you try to correct for, but I don't think very successfully. And runners who did get better, there was a, there was a runner, I think a fairly long distance one, something like a half or marathoner, um, who improved significantly after transition. So I forget the numbers, but let's say it was mid-pack as a male runner and then somewhere near the front as a female runner. And Harper's explanation was that this trans woman 
had significantly up their training and that's why they got better mm. and so I always thought that was interesting and that that particular runner never got that much attention in the grand scheme but what that said to me was well hang on if you train there's no reason why trans women can't actually improve their sporting yeah, and performance and, and I think correct me if I'm wrong I think that wasn't just the case of improving relative rankings. The actual time improved. Yes. Yeah, yeah so they became a better runner. Right. Not just relative to their new group, but actually relative to themselves before. Yes. Right. And that seems fairly significant. Mm. Do, you think, do you think, just coming back, a couple of questions. Do you think it's plausible that there might be a situation where some sports uh, can have the advantage removed or largely removed, whereas others can't because of what you mentioned earlier, the hemoglobin being more sensitive to the suppression of testosterone than maybe the muscle mass and the stature? So I think if you were to, if you could hypothesize, and I don't think such a sport exists, but if you could hypothesize a sport where the only advantage, the only physical advantage was entirely captured in hemoglobin, mm. and we know that testosterone suppression reduces hemoglobin to female reference levels, then the, I think the argument then, it's not necessarily one I would make, and there are other you know, issues at play, but the argument then would be, well, hang on, these males can no longer, um, or do no longer have an advantage over females, because the, mm. entire, you know, the, the entire lump of advantage has, has gone here. Now, I don't think such a sport exists. Cardiovascular capacity is much more than hemoglobin alone. Sure. What about, um, what about the sort of a, a complementary, similar situation where instead of taking the advantage away, the initial advantage may be smaller? And I'm, I'm referencing here, there was a paper by Hamilton mm. earlier this year in which they mentioned that potentially archery and shooting are sports where the male-female gap is so small that in actual fact the, the testosterone intervention would eliminate the advantage? Yeah, so, so the argument um, for archery is if we think about running, the male advantage is about 10%. If we think about weightlifting, it's 30%. Um, the the, the male-female gap in archery looks to run about, I think it's about let's say 5%. I, don't, I think it's actually slightly lower than 5%. Mm. And, and the argument then is, if trans women remove 5% of their strength and they've lost some you know, cardiovascular capacity, maybe, like you say, maybe the initial gap is sufficiently small that you know, this is essentially wiped out by these small but you know, um, now important losses when it comes to a sport like archery. But I, I think in that paper... The male-female gap was calculated by score. And I don't really understand why a 5% difference in score has been translated into a 5% difference in physical capacity in archery. That mm. seems to me to not be a logical progression. Because scoring systems are, are not always direct outputs of you know, physical capacity. Yeah, in a linear way, anyway. For sure. And so, so I've always been slightly confused about why someone's saying, well, look, males outscore females by 5%, therefore they're only 5% stronger than females. And, and in, in that paper, the word stronger there refers to physical strength. 
So, so I don't know if I accept the premise that males are only 5% or males only have a 5% performance advantage in archery. And I don't think the paper really looked at different draw weights. Um, you know, males can use bows that are kind of tighter, that they can pull back further, that they can impart more speed onto an arrow. So I think that paper's got a lot of flaws. That doesn't take away from the hypothetical, which is if there is a sport where male advantage is only 5% and transition removes 5%, do we then have parity between males and females? Well, maybe we do, yes. Mm. Which, which kind of tees up the IOC policy. But before I get there, one other question is, and I don't know which way society will go on this issue over the next three or four years, because... In the last year or so, we've seen, for instance, the Kira Bell case in the UK. I know that the, in Sweden, they've created policy that I think, and you'll correct me on the numbers, that I think they prevent surgical and medical interventions until a person is 18. Mm -hmm. But it does also seem to me that in many places in the world, the age of transition or sex reassignment is going younger and younger. So what would sports make of an argument that says that if you transition prior to puberty, then you never accrue the advantage and therefore there should be no problem with participation in, in women's sport. So I think going back right to the beginning as a developmental biologist, and, and my argument has been that the majority of advantages acquired at puberty, it's not clear that all male advantages acquired at puberty. Males are exposed to testosterone in the womb and they have a, an actually quite a significant burst of testosterone just after birth. Mm. And if you, you know, there are, there are attempts and studies and some data to try and understand what's that burst of testosterone doing to males post-birth. It happens at about, I think, six months or so. And it's been correlated with um, BMI later on in life. It's been correlated with growth trajectory through childhood so one might if you take a broad view say that actually there is some acquisition of male advantage pre-puberty um, if you were to look at something like preventing puberty and let's say that that acquisition of advantage in early childhood is very small you know very minor part of the total male advantage if you were to look at blocking puberty, the answer is we don't really know, you know, what the, what the outcome of that would be. There are mm -hmm. no studies of um, height of muscle mass in males who have blocked puberty before it's even started. Right. And so we simply don't have that data. We can make some hypotheses. We have some data from... Uh, so trans girls, I guess now, trans girls who have started blocking at maybe age 12. But at that point, maybe they've had a year of puberty. So, and in fact, it's, it's, it was, you know, the Kira Bell case aside and the appeals that are going on with that. It was the law in the UK that you cannot start puberty blockers until you've already started puberty. Right. So almost definitionally, you weren't capturing, you know, an entire blockade. Mm. And I mean, just operationally, I shudder to think how sport would ever implement a policy that allows you to participate depending upon the age at which you transition. I mean, it's difficult enough for sport to manage things like doping. I mean, this is a, 
I, I couldn't see the solution to this practically, even if it theoretically worked. Uh, yes, yeah, I I agree, and I I, mm. I have reservations on a personal level about being seen to incentivise blocking puberty. Yes, I think sport has shown that it will go to extreme lengths sometimes, and this might just mm. be one more reason to do that. Let's uh, let let's get on to the IOC document we teed it up um, a moment ago, and then and then deviated from it. In, in the aftermath of, for instance, your paper on testosterone suppression and the retention of advantage, Joanna Harper effectively confirmed your and, and Tommy Lindbergh's findings. World Rugby's policy was, I think, the first Olympic mm. code to, to break rank, as it were. There was a conversation around the Tokyo Olympics in which Richard Budget, the aforementioned medical officer, said that the IOC's transgender guidelines were no longer fit for purpose. Now... I don't know what was in your mind when you read that, but I thought that they'd recognized that the testosterone, quote unquote, fix doesn't work. And so they were heading towards some kind of uh, more severe um, policy around testosterone reduction. And then, of course, the exact opposite happened. What, what, did, you, what did you make of that IOC document? What, what are its redeeming qualities and what are the problems? So the the new guidelines that they've yeah, released. Yes. So yeah. so not I'm not surprised by the um, the devolution of rulemaking to this the the governing bodies the individual kind of sports governing bodies. I think we were all expecting that, and I think I'm not I'm not entirely sure what I I know what I hoped for or what I hoped for, because I thought it was the right thing. Um, when I heard Richard Budget say that the testosterone rules are not fit for purpose. I'd seen some other IOC committee members discuss whether a lowering of the threshold of testosterone suppression. So from 2015, trans women were required to get below... Um, a 10 nanomolar threshold for those in, who are listening. 10 nanomolar is just a kind of concentration. Nanomolar is a concentration unit. Mm. They were required to get below 10 nanomolar. And I guess what we'd seen from people like World Athletics was making that more stringent. So down to five nanomolar. Now, that was, you know, you talked about this as a fix. We both agree that it doesn't work mm. in terms of muscle mass and height and that kind of thing. So I guess I'd assumed that when Budget said it's not fit for purpose, this testosterone rule is not fit for purpose, I'd assumed it would be made more stringent. Yes, that was, certainly, that was certainly mine. Yeah. Because, and just, just for the benefit of listeners, Emma was one of the delegates at a workshop that World Rugby organized. And within the first two hours of that workshop, it became apparent to everyone on the panel that this testosterone solution didn't work. And the World Rugby reaction to it was, in that case, a, we can no longer compel people to reduce testosterone, and B, therefore, we can't allow trans women to play in, in women's rugby. So it was a fairly logical action. They, they seem to not have made it, which I found remarkable. I, and again, I mean, I, I, I shouldn't be so naive. I've been around long enough not to be, but I was, I was quite <laughs> surprised by what came out. Yes, because what came out was something that I think surprised everyone, and I know that I don't want to characterize people as being on opposing sides here, but even someone like Joanna Harper, who would be very pro-inclusion and who thinks that the testosterone rules do provide a fix, um, 
people like Joanna Harper were surprised by this when the IOC essentially came out and said, it's not testosterone, you don't need to regulate testosterone at all. And Richard Budget has kind of supplemented that in, in interviews by saying, not only is it not testosterone, but, you know, it's obviously not testosterone. And I think everyone who's got any understanding of sports science was thinking, this, I mean, this is not right. <laughs> mm. Mm. So in effect, I mean, we had a situation, I'm almost visualizing a, a, a castle, a woman's sport as a, as a castle whose, whose walls were already being scaled. But there was at least a moat around it. It might not have been the world's most effective moat. But they, they basically dropped the drawbridge and opened the door. Mm. Is there any... What, what, what now stops people from simply self-identifying into women's sport? Well, I'm, by the IOC policy, um, nothing. They, they have encouraged... There's this this section that says sports federations should ensure that, you know, uh, kind of declare gender identity as genuine. And I don't really, uh, you know, I don't really know how you necessarily go about that. And I don't want to try and think of rules for how you ascertain those kinds of things. You know, various countries have kind of legal processes for acquiring a, you know, gender status and that kind of thing. But so they, they've kind of said no, but make sure everyone's genuine. But it, but self ID is an, is really about an unaltered male body now entering female sport, mm. and and that becomes really really mind blowing actually. That like you say, it's frustrating. We've been able to make any impact here. On... Yeah, I, it's. It is. I'm, I was almost at a loss for words. Uh, the, mm. None of the words I have are good ones. Um, <laughs> the, 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 I suppose, like, the, the, the thing is they've thrown it back to the federations. That's the one good thing, because as we've discussed, it's quite clear that a combat sport, for instance, might have a different take on the imperatives. And once again, if you want to understand the imperatives in sport, John Pike, Dr. John Pike is, is a really good follow. He explains it better than I can. Um, I suppose that's the only good thing about it, but it it, it does feel I, like um, almost an abdication of leadership mm -hmm. and, a, and, a, and a, a sidestep of science, you know? But did you see, I, I mean, I know you did, what the, the Sports Council report that came out in the UK. Yeah, that was a fantastic document. About six weeks ago, which, mm. which basically laid out, you know, you need to choose inclusion or fairness you can't have both and right. the first the first sports federation that came out and said yay inclusion was kick british kickboxing i remember that astonishing and so saying that a combat sport might have you know might have an easier route and you'll know from world rugby there's big safety aspects to consider that that to some extent make you know a decision making process slightly easier to navigate um, mm. But if you can't trust ki a kickboxing body to say, oh, hang on, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we've got some reservations about self-ID, about, you know, male people, males who can punch 160% harder than females. Um, you know, being in a ring with a female, this is, I, I just, I'm not sure I trust anyone to do the right thing here. Yeah, it's, it's just demoralizing. Apart um, from world rugby. <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I can I can say that I mean even even for us, um, given you know World Rugby says often, and it's not just lip service. People I'm sure who follow the sport might call it that, but we do re- repeatedly say that player welfare is the number one priority, even outside of the context of this debate. So it was a fairly simple call for us to make to prioritize safety over. Um, inclusion and then fairness obviously and safety are, are, are two sides of the same coin because they're created by the same physiology the problem we had there and i mean i ended up almost getting into knots about it is people then challenged us to prove that it was unsafe if you were stronger faster and more powerful and then you say well okay h- how how do we prove it so the, there's a line almost for for standard of evidence that's required to mm. enact a policy that's discriminatory and the moment that burden of proof gets switched around, you're in big trouble. So when people are saying to World Rugby, prove to me that size, strength, and power increases the risk of injury, now suddenly we've got to, we've got to prove it in that direction at a high, high enough standard to be legally defensible. That's, that's really awkward. And sports federations have effectively been tasked with the same thing by the IOC's document because they now have to prove that a trans woman mm-hmm. has an advantage as opposed to a trans woman, sorry, doesn't ha- has an advantage as opposed to the assumption that they don't, which is literally stated in that document. That was, for me, the most galling part of that document is the presumption of no advantage. Yes, and I think it's, it is remarkable that you're saying, not you, you know, the IOC is saying that to sports federations who for the most part, categorize sports based on the presumption of advantage. You know, the male and female categories exist based on the presumption of advantage for males. No sports federation believes that every single male is faster or stronger or more powerful than every female. They, they go through the kind of thought process that we've been through about like-for-like training, about like-for-like talent, and, and there is a presumption that males have advantage. And, and in fact, there's a biological basis for why that happens. We know where that advantage comes from. And so, so it's not simply what the IOC has said about no presumption of ad- advantage is actually a much wider statement, I think, than just for trans women. Mm. Because it kind of undermines the idea of categorization which is the presumption of advantage it's the presumption of advantage for a heavyweight boxer it's the presumption of advantage for males it's the presumption of advantage for able-bodied people adults versus children same thing exactly and and in age categories this is how categories work the presumption of advantage yeah but people just just on that you reminded me it's almost it's almost humorous if it wasn't so ridiculous is we we had a call with one of the unions i won't say which one to discuss the transgender policy because as you might know listeners that world rugby cannot develop a policy that then has to be applied in different countries around the world because they all have their own constitutions and legislations and so on so we were on a call with one of the unions and the time was running out and one of the people on the call said we have to go now because We've got a meeting about safeguarding young children to ensure that they don't get harmed playing rugby against adults. So they've, they've already recognized that this risk exists mm-hmm. and you have these major imbalances. But they can't bring themselves to recognize that the same risk applies across the sex categories. It's, it's an amazing blind spot for me. I don't know whether you've seen the same thing. I mean, certainly I was just going to chip in with, yeah, the, the rugby rules for kind of age 
categories and age grading and who can play who can play up in age, who can play down in age. And and that's also stratified by sex. It's just, I find it just astonishing that there is, where there needs to be, certainly for safety reasons, but safety and fairness are pretty much, you know, predicated on the same physical characteristics. They they go very much hand in hand. That, that yeah, I don't know. It's baffling. It's just, it's so mm. inconsistent. There's no internal logic to it. Yeah, and, and the thing about that is there's no evidence that says why we should separate those who are under 16 from those who are under 18 from those who are over 18 adults. There's no, there's no scientific study that has proven that some kind of legal standard, yet now we're being mm. asked to do the same thing for, for biological sex. It's just, um, yeah, anyway. A <laughs> uh, couple, couple other things. So, sorry, did you want to add something on that concept? No, 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 I'm all right. Sorry. I probably shifted I my phone or something. <laughs> Like the, the, the forgotten half of the debate, and, and it is actually Mara Yamauchi, who's another one on Twitter, Mara underscore Yamauchi, on this call now, who's been also very outspoken in the last while. And she actually asked that I ask you this, is the issue of trans men. So now we have individuals who are biologically female who then take testosterone. So it's the reverse. And A, why we don't see them in, in uh, men's sport and why there's actually no problem with them participating in men's sport. So uh, yes, there is an asymmetry. I think a lot of a lot of the problems that we've seen, particularly in the states, where they have kind of forced it to be a symmetrical situation. So what, where, if you choose to regulate trans girls in high school sport, there seems to be this idea that you have to do the same for trans boys. So that would be females who identify as as boys. Um, the situations are not symmetrical. That's life. Mm. I know, I know. you know, it seems that people think equality means symmetry in this case. It's not. The situations are asymmetrical. And so a, a trans man, so this is a female who usually supplements testosterone, doesn't acquire the amount of muscle that we might expect had she been through a male puberty. Um, they certainly don't seem to reach the levels of strength that um, males have. And when we think about, well, you'll know, you, you know, in, in rugby, you've got an asymmetric policy, haven't you? Because you don't exclude trans men from the male game. Right. Yeah. Is it, that's right, isn't it? You, you have kind of consent procedures and, you know, informed and, and have some kind of physical... Yes, exactly right. And that was, a, that was a very tricky part of the policy, incidentally. Um, having recognized that the, the biological advantage was retained in the one direction, we, we also then knew that um, there'd be no biological advantage in the other direction. But by virtue of the lack of androgenization during puberty, there'd probably be a disadvantage in the other direction. Mm. And when we sent that document out for consultation, and we did consult very widely, it wasn't just five people in a room. Um, we, ha we actually had some fairly intensive legal discussions about whether you could, if, if you were preventing one group from participating because of risk of harm, then how could you allow the other one when a potentially theoretically similar risk of harm exists? And what it basically boils down to is risk to others versus risk to self. So the degree to which other people can consent to risk as opposed to consenting to take that upon themselves. And we, we went back and forth. There was, a, there was a real prospect that we take out the allowance of trans men competing in men's rugby. 
for that very reason, to make the two sides consistent. But in the end, decided that it wasn't necessary because there were and are mechanisms in place in rugby where you, you can look at someone and say, is this person at least of a standard that they will not be a, a risk to themselves? Mm. You can't do it in the other direction, though. That's the problem. Yes, I think it's been it's quite interesting to see the the way that this is being played out because I think we 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 do know that trans men and we and we actually have I'm going to make an analogy because we we've got a lot of data that we can apply to we can make some quite strong predictions about trans men who supplement testosterone because obviously we've got you know in the athletics world for example a huge history of females who were doped not right. just with testosterone, mm. but with things like growth hormone, with all kinds of stimulants and that kind of thing. So, so we can make predictions about, look, what's really what's the maximum performance, if you like? What's the mm. maximum performance we can get out of doping a female? Um, sorry, that language just sounds kind of flippant, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. and, and what we see is that trans men, you know, if we consider a female body that's been supplemented with lots of hormones and that kind of thing they they just don't achieve the same kind of standard of uh, level of performance as males mm. and so so they're simply not a competitive risk to males you've just talked about the potential safety risk that they they might be taking on by competing in certain sports but they're not a competitive risk to the male male competition yeah they're not yeah, going to you know they're not going to swim as fast they're not going to throw a shot put as far it's... Yeah, because as powerful as testosterone is, when it's applied that late, it just cannot overcome biology. Mm. That's, that's the problem. And, and it's so interesting. If, if listeners want, go and look at the record lists, the world's top 50 performances in track and field for women, and just look how many of the power and speed events are, <laughs> date back to the 1970s and 80s. In fact, the, the women's 800 is the, it's almost amusing. Mm. There's not a single performance in that top 20 that's not known to have doped. I strongly believe to have doped or has had a DST. It's it's uh, oh, wow, it's, okay. almost, it's almost a yeah. And actually, I, the phrasing is too clumsy for me to get it across, but I think you get the point I'm making. Mm. Um, so it's almost like the testosterone moves those individuals into a, a, a super physiological realm, and it's taken 20, 30 years, and in some instances, still hasn't happened for advances in sports science and technology and equipment and natural human progression to bridge the gap that was created by the by the steroids and just yeah. on that, i mean one person listening to this who's been directly affected and has spoken about it is sharon davies so she knows it very well the reason i keep bringing this up by the way is because i'm very flattered that you've decided to listen on in our conversation so thanks to all <laughs> of you but a special thanks i see i see for instance daily thompson's on and, and it's, it's oh I'm hello quite, everyone <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm quite a i'm quite a, a fan in these moments so that's the reason um where, because I'm mindful of people's time and yours, uh, where does this end, in your opinion? I mean, obviously there's a there's a worst case scenario, good and a likely. I mean, the worst case scenario is is almost unthinkable. Um, yes. But what do you think happens next? I think I will uh, drag you back. Not that you'll need much reminding to to a very stark um, proposition at the World Rugby Workshop delivered in the legal session, which was fundamentally appealing to the pockets of sporting federations. And you've got two, two sides here. You've got, as you've just, I think, alluded to, you've got the prospect of serious injury, perhaps life-changing injury, perhaps worse, for a female who 
perhaps hasn't consented to be on a rugby pitch against a trans woman who has retained, you know, the vast majority of male strength and power. And that's the lawsuit waiting to happen. And on the other side, you've got um, potentially someone who, who fights an exclusion policy on, you know, on a human rights platform or that kind of thing. And so I think this may be heading for the courts one way or the other. Yes, I would agree. I mean, we, um, we, uh, we, we certainly in our, in our discussions about it recognized that irrespective of the direction we took, there'd probably be some legal outcome anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there are, there are so many different angles you could think of here. So it's not just if a female gets hurt, but if a female loses her place in a team and that's Mm -hmm. losing an opportunity and sports isn't, you know, it doesn't stop when you finish your athletic career because you have kind of speaking opportunities and leadership opportunities afterwards, that kind of thing. So mm. if you lose your place on the team, it's not just about losing a medal, it's about losing, your, in some cases, perhaps a future. Um, so if a female loses a place, does she have a, you know, discrimination claim? Does it, like I say, does a male who is not trans who is excluded on the basis of gender identity from a female team? Is that an indirect discrimination claim? There are well, lots and lots layers yeah, so here. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's kind of in play in the US, right? Is, is it Selena Sewell, the, 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 the plaintiff? Or the, the... Yes. So, I mean, I want, it'd be really interesting to see how that goes. But I, like you, I mean, it's terrible to say, but, but I think there are some people out there who won't be convinced until the worst case scenario happens. And then it'll make for a really fascinating discussion as to how how willing are we to accept the potential worst outcome in, in this debate? Mm. And that's, uh, and then which direction has the burden of proof? Because people will then say, well, it's happened before when men play against men and when women play against women, serious injuries happen in boxing and kickboxing and, and whatever sports. So prove to me that this injury happened because of the biological difference. And then where do you go? Yeah, and I think, I think you're... If we look at something like the um, England rugby proposals, where you know where they were kind of feeding off the world rugby guidelines and trying to work through their policy, and they ran a consultation. One of the um, one of the the things that England rugby said, and in fact, what comes out a lot from sports federations is we don't have any athlete data, in play data, that kind of thing. Mm. And in rugby, essentially, what that means is we don't have a list of the injuries that trans women have caused. And until we have those, we don't have proof that we can exclude. Mm. And then I'm thinking, well, how many injuries is enough? Right. And that's why the, that's why the wording of the burden of proof thing in the IOC document is, is so um, significant. Because it asks the sports to do it in that direction rather than the other way. And that's, when, it, mm. when that gets put in court of law... It's a, it's a completely different proposition to what we would argue as scientists about. Yes, I think the scientific burden of proof, the IOC has completely flipped that on its head. But I'm, I don't know, maybe you do, the legal burden of proof doesn't always lie in the same way as the scientific burden of proof, if I... Right. Well, I, I'm, I'm not making a definitive statement about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on thin ice legally also. But, for instance, if I link back Oscar Pistorius, that case basically boiled down to burden of proof. Who had to prove advantage as opposed to disadvantage? And Cass, I think the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is where this goes, has erred in the past 
on the side of uh, burden of proof. And as I understand it, because it's a, because it would be viewed as a discriminatory policy, and of course, it, pick who's being discriminated against, right? Is it the trans or the mm. woman? Uh, the, the burden of proof will, will ultimately probably determine the case if the quality of the science isn't good enough. And that's, to me, quite a scary prospect. Mm. Yeah. Um, last, maybe not last question, but maybe I don't want to end on this note. But you, I mentioned earlier the U.S. We, we've got a number of states in the U.S. now that have got these, these bills that will basically do what you and I have been discussing should be done. Um, does, it, does it ever bother you that this thing is so politicized that it's lumped together with things that maybe aren't um, palatable or, or uh, that you agree with, but, but you're on their side now? <laughs> if <I'm not> sure. <laughs> Well, um, what, what do you mean? I think I know what you mean, but I just want to be sure. <laughs> well, I mean, I, let me be straight about it. Sometimes I wake up and I see Twitter and I think, oh, my goodness, I actually agree with Tucker Carlson. Okay. <laughs> yes. And I, so that's what, I, that's what I thought you were saying. So, yes, I have been called, you know, a right-wing conservative Christian, you know, well, and even even worse. Um, essentially, you know, that I'm in, in bed with the American right wing, mm. which, which anyone who knows me would just be absolutely like, it's an insane thing to say. Right. Um, I think that there are, there are some quite good arguments about there about, you know, when you find your politics are aligned in one thing, or, or rather your, your desired outcomes are aligned your politics the reasons for you wanting those outcomes might not be the same thing um and i my standard response is that look i'm vegetarian and i'm oh i'm gonna like godwin this entire conversation but hitler was a vegetarian <laughs> and so the idea that yeah. because, i don't know do hitler and i have overlapping ideas about animal rights or, you know, whatever reason for our vegetarianism, <laughs> that, that somehow we also agree on, you know, every other type of politics. So I'd, I've always found it quite a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre claim, you know, that if you agree with someone on one thing, you must agree with them on 10 others. But I do, I do share your feeling that when you look and think, oh, my goodness. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I just try to say, what can we do? You know, you can just argue from your own points of view. You can, you know use your own politics to support your kind of ideas about, I don't know, society and class and, you know, fairness, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose that's why also, I mean, can't make the point often enough. Don't worry about who's saying it. Worry about what they're saying and whether mm. the quality of the arguments are, are adequate and so on. It's just, imagine how many things we miss and ignore because we reject the source of them as opposed to the content of the message. It feels foolish to me irrespective of how much overlap there is in the politics i can't this i can't yeah. let this conversation end in the in the red and blue uh guts of the u.s politics <laughs> so let me ask you this is there is there anything that you would then advocate uh i suppose on sport generally but but more than that even um for women to do to change the the, the tone and the inertia of this conversation like what what can they do they're listening to this and they're saying I'm passionate about this. I'm frustrated about this, but I, I don't feel I can do anything. There must be something, right? So, you know, I would always encourage women to use your voice. And we talked earlier, right at the very start, about how difficult that is. And, I, you know, 
thanks to Sharon out there, she's still there. And, and the other female athletes who are speaking up now, now they do so mostly from a position of retirement from competitive athletics. And so, so they don't have as much to lose as current athletes. Um, you will have seen this um, paper by Cathy Devine talking about mm. female Olympians and how they felt about these, you know, the rules and regulations and lack of consultation. You'll have seen the same with the World Rugby player consultation. Um, so use your voice where you can. Don't, you know, risk your job and career over it. We, we understand. There are some of us who, who are able to speak and some who aren't. Get writing. If you're involved in coaching, I speak with, I speak with grassroots coaches who who don't have an avenue. They don't know who they can talk to. They don't know who they can write to. They want to write, they want to talk, but they can't. So, so make contacts and try and try and find the person that you need to listen to you. Mm. Same advice for men. I, I mean, men can do what they want. <laughs> no, I mean, what, what do you mean? <laughs> it, would I advise men to speak up? Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course one oh, would. You'd, you'd, never, you'd never not advise someone to speak up. I just always wonder um, whether the, 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 the tone of the conversation would change more or less if, if there were more men involved, you know, if there's some men, some Olympic athletes who said some things. And... I mean, sure, look, you know, we're talking about sport, and I think sport is a, a kind of such a broad appeal to a lot of, you know, different people. And I think we can't really deny that in sports, men have a lot of power. You know, I, I imagine most of the governing bodies, certainly the IOC, you've got an awful lot of men there making decisions. And, you know, I'm not proud if it takes, a, a, you know, a movement by men to say, listen to us. If mm. the message gets heard, then that's, that's all to the, the greater good, isn't it? Yeah, that's the only thing I think that matters. My my impression has been over the last two or three years that there are far more people speaking up, but I, I, ne I never know whether that's because I'm part of the conversation more than I was, whether it's actually happening. What's your impression? Oh, no, I think we, we have seen a, a big increase in the number of people who are aware of the issue in sports. Um, I kind of entered the fray maybe five, six years ago now, and have been talking about it on Twitter for three years. And in that time, I've seen a lot more people be much more aware and, and much more educated on it. I think sport is something that people have often very personal experience of. Mm. And, and it's almost, it, it's, it's very unbelievable, I think, to the general population whether it's because they're particularly educated on, you know, what t testosterone does to muscles <laughs> in puberty, or whether it's just simply because, you know, they played football against, you know, other people at school and that they just knew that boys were stronger than girls. Um, and so, so there's probably a, a big chunk of people who are a bit macho about it, but, but they're not wrong. That's, you know, it's not wrong for, um, for people to really connect with sport and have a very very clear experience of of this difference between males and females and how that's going to play out mm, absolutely i think we've covered so much in the last hour and a half i thought we'd do an hour and we've gone well over that and i can keep going <laughs> but i'm not going to but i want to no, we'll do it again <laughs> yeah we'll do it again i mean there's gonna the problem's not going anywhere i wish it were and you could get back to 
arguing about creation versus evolution, but I'm afraid <laughs> you, I'm afraid you're stuck with this one. No, um, that's um, that's um, good. I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. So thanks very much for your time. Thanks everyone for listening. No, thanks well. for having me. Um, this will go out as a podcast as well. So if, if you've un- come in at the end of it or you had to leave and come back, you'll be able to hear the bits you missed at some point. If you're in the US and you're listening to this, then hopefully it's giving you some uh, conversation topics for your Thanksgiving dinner. I know family fun <laughs> on our account. But uh, thanks very much for that. And we will speak to you again soon. Oh, and lastly, you now know what At Fond of Beatles is all about. And you also know what Emma Hilton is all about. And so give her a follow on Twitter and what wasn't discussed here will no doubt be discussed there. So thanks very much to everyone, especially Emma. And have a good Thank evening, you. morning, afternoon. Bye-bye, everyone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 